Good morning. Good morning. Oh, that's cool. I, I want to, before we start, I want to let you know that I, I, I got a couple compliments with the jacket, right? So, usually I'm in the back and uh, I'm like not color coordinated, but, but today it's different. So, just all dress me. Um, and that's good. So good morning one more time, right? We're going to take a break from our study of Exodus, our awesome study. It's been great. And we're going to take a look at another book of the, the Old Testament, uh, Ezra. And we're going to do the whole chapter, Ezra 1. Uh, by the way, Pastor Brian is not here. As you can see, uh, that's my son uh, saying what's up. But he, he's not here. He's driving with, I think, coming back today with, with the men that went to the men's retreat, right? So pray for them that it was a refreshing time. Pray for their safety for their comeback. And then we'll see them all next week. And then, you know, have a fun time. And they can share to us what they, uh, what they found, what they heard, you know, how the Lord blessed them. And the, just the, the building that happened there among the community of God over there. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ezra, Ezra chapter 1. One. Does anybody need a Bible? Didn't bring a Bible? Don't have a Bible? Don't own a Bible? If you don't own a Bible, we want to give you a Bible, actually. That's a, it's a gift for us to you. But does anybody need a Bible or forgot a Bible? I can walk it over real fast to you. No? Awesome. Outstanding. So Ezra chapter 1. Uh, it's right before Nehemiah. And it's in the Old Testament. And there you have a table of contents that might be able to help you, just in case. It's a little obscure. But as you're turning there, let's pray, okay? One more time. Father, we're so grateful that you are our God and that you work ways in, in different things, at different levels, and we can't fathom it, but we're so grateful for who you are, your character, and what you have done and what you're doing, the things that we don't even understand. And so we pray, Father, that you would tune our hearts today to listen to your word, that we, you would tune our hearts and our ears and our minds, that we would grasp what you're trying to tell us in the text. And pray, Father, for your conviction to drive us in the direction we need to be and for us to uh, see you face to face in the text as you lead us through. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, uh, 2012, there was a story, a story that ran um, on a newspaper or article somewhere of siblings that were kind of, uh, what's the word, they, they got separated early on for about almost 20 decades, right? So Stephanie, who was one year old, and her brother Thomas, who was four days old, they were separated. Uh, Mom couldn't take care of Thomas, so she put him up for adoption. And Stephanie stayed with her mom, and after a year, her mom disappeared, like uh, nowhere to be found. So she stayed with her grandma. But for 18 years, she looked and looked, internet, newspapers, calling... um, the, the adoption places to find, and 18 years later, she found him, right? So she called the adoptive parents, set up a meeting, met him, and after all this time, after being separated from each other, and ha- after having different lives, they were able to come back together, and now they're just catching up, right? They're, just, they're, just, they're spending their entire life catching up as siblings, and I, I love that story. And in the Bible... That's all over the place. This idea of restoration and return and rebuilding. It's all over the Bible. It's what we're going to see in our text today. It's what God calls us in our relationships. 
And ultimately, it is the redemptive plan of God in the gospel where he brings us to himself to restore us in that broken relationship caused by sin. So all of that is all over the text in the Bible in terms of restoration, and that's what we're going to see even in today's text. So the book of Ezra, a little background, is a pivotal book. It, it turns so many things. In fact, you will see later that so many books in the Bible crossroads in Ezra because of what it does, what the representation of God in it, and what God is doing in it. A whole era shifts in this book. It shifts, and it happens very quickly. In fact, in a matter of a couple of verses, when we start reading, you'll see that chapter 1 reverses 70 years of despair, of of captivity, of alienation, of problems in a matter of a few verses. In the Hebrew Bible, the the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah is actually one book. And in tradition, Ezra wrote Ezra, even though it doesn't say it like right out. But let me let's give a little background uh, of of the book of where where it's placed. Okay, so remember that the after Solomon died. After Solomon died, the kingdom split. The north and the south, kind of like thrive groups. But anyways, the (laughs) the north and the south, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, right? The northern kingdom was destroyed, dispersed by the Assyrians. And then the Assyrians was taken over as a world power by Babylon. And then 200 years later, the south was taken, dispersed, uh, and conquered by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians themselves, they took a portion, a remnant of Judah into Babylon Nebuchadnezzar did that, right? He took them in there. And so you're probably familiar with a lot of the people that were in Babylon, right? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Hebrew children in the fire, didn't want to bow down. That's in Babylon. Daniel, who was a prisoner at, at, at first, didn't want to eat meat, ate veggies, right? Some of you guys are, some of you guys are doing the Daniel fast. I know. But if you remember when Daniel ate veggies... He got choppier. But don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. That's, you do that. Do that to yourself. Okay, good. All right, anyways, Daniel, who was sent to the lion's den, that was Daniel. That's, all of that was in, as in Babylon. All of that happened in Babylon. So the remnant of Judah and, and Benjamin, which comprised the south, was in Babylon for 70 years. 70 years, right? And in fact, the famous verse that a lot of Christians put on t-shirts and coffee mugs and calendars, Jeremiah 29, 11, you guys remember that? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. That is God's warm, warm, encouraging word to people in exile in Babylon. So next time you see that, you go, that's a verse for people in Babylon. So this occasion of return from exile was prophesied by Jeremiah, Isaiah, and even Ezekiel. And I want you to think of something right off the bat, okay? God deals with huge things, right? But also with little things, right? He deals with the individual person in our daily lives. That's why there's text that says our daily bread, And then God also deals with world events, seasons, you know, at a global scale, right? That's our God. And so our message today is entitled, Hearts, Seasons, and Plans. What do those three have in common? 
they're all in God's hands. They're all in God's hands. The heart of the people, including the king, the seasons of kingdoms and individual lives, the individual plans, all of that is in God's hands. And that should bring us so much comfort and so much joy, right? But all of that, big, small, is in the Lord's hands. So we're going to approach the text today in four parts, four sections kind of going to break up the whole chapter in these four things. And the first one is remarkable turn of events. The second is the restoration proclaimed. Third is response to rebuild. And four is returned treasure. I spent 17 hours trying to make them all started with R, right? So you better appreciate, I'm just kidding, I'm just just joking, just joking. After that, we're going to go do some takeaways and then we'll close, all right? So the first one, uh, the remarkable, remarkable turn of events. Verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah may be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying... Stop right there. Stop right there. So I want you to notice that's just one sentence and there's already so much in there, right? So if you have your Bibles and you can write them, circle the word that, circle the word phrase, word of the Lord, circle the the phrase might be fulfilled, circled, stirred up, in fact, circle the entire verse, right? It's just so amazing. But there's three questions immediately that launches after you read that first verse. And this is this, there are the three questions. Who is Cyrus and what's he got to do with anything? What was the word of the Lord by Jeremiah's mouth that needed to be fulfilled? And why and how did God stir up the spirit of Cyrus? Okay. Immediately. I know, I read your mind. I know you're, you're asking those three questions. So let's just jump right into it. The first one is, what does a Persian king have to do with God's people exiled in Babylon? So remember the story of in Daniel where there was a writing on the wall. You remember that, right? So Belshazzar, which is the, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, threw a party. Threw a party, and he's king now. So he threw a party. He said, bring out the articles of God from he- the Hebrew, you know, st- you know, drinking stuff, and bring it out. Let's have a party. So he's having a party. In fact, he's, he's, we're going to talk about those vessels of gold and silver later in verse 9 and 10. But he brings them out, and all of a sudden, as they're partying, a hand comes out of nowhere. It says a human hand comes out of nowhere and starts writing on the wall, Right? Uh, that's where we kind of get that phrase, the writings on the wall. So he, he starts writing on the wall, and he freaks out. In fact, in the text, it says that he loses his color, his knees knock together, no kidding, that's what it says, because he was afraid. And he calls magicians and sorcerers to try to interpret it. No one knows. So the, the queen, the queen mother says, there's a guy, his name is Daniel, and this is what he does, so call him in. So it brings him in, and this is what he says. Verse 25 of Daniel 5, beginning verse 25. This is the inscription that was written, Many, many, tekel, and parson. Here is what these words mean. This is Daniel speaking now. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, or parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. 
And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. That's Darius, the one who sent Daniel to the lion's den later. But Darius is the governor that King Cyrus appointed to oversee Babylon. Okay. So now, at, by the time we get to Ezra, there's a total shift of power. Nebuchadnezzar and his family, Belshazzar, they're all gone. Now the Persians and the Medes are in charge. And that's so interesting because in Isaiah, more than 200 years before this event, Isaiah prophesied about Cyrus. So Isaiah chapter 45 verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, 200 years before, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that gates may be closed. Skip to verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you though you do not know me. What's that mean? That before his parents named him, Before Cyrus's grandparents even existed, before the Persians ever came to power, God already named him and declared his purpose for him that he was going to bring Israel back home. Amazing, right? 200 years prior to him being on the throne, God says, there's going to be a guy, his name is going to be Cyrus, and he is going to help my people come out of Babylon. 200 years before so, so the second question I know that you were asking and we, we talked about is what was the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah that needed to be fulfilled? Because that's the reason why the spirit of Cyrus got stirred up. That's the why. What was the word, right? Because I want you to notice the emphasis on God's word. The emphasis on God's word. Because the word of Jeremiah was actually God's word through Jeremiah. In other words, God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to fulfill God's own word. And what was that word? Jeremiah 29.10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. God told them before they even went in that after 70 years I'm taking you back. All of that was to bring them comfort. So now the first year of Cyrus... When he took over, it was about 67 or 68 years that Judah has been held captive. And he started to get the ball rolling. And there's three waves of, of return. And by the time the last person who wanted to go home got home, it was exactly 70 years. Amazing story. If you ever get a chance to really study more into it, it's important. But why is that important? Why is it important to me? Why is it important to us? Well, God's character is on display. His attributes, his power is on display. God doesn't simply know the future. He plans the future. Nothing is outside his knowledge or authority than events and the kings and individual lives and seasons doesn't surprise our God. And that's a comfort, isn't it? When, when we feel like life's derailing or when we feel like Something has all of, all of a sudden come upon us. God is on his throne and he is in charge and he is not surprised and he's certainly not powerless, right? That's our God. But we're not done with verse one. Not done with verse one. So 
the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, of the king of Persia. I want you to take a look at Proverbs 21.1. It says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. That is a mystery, right? That's a mystery how God affects the heart and the will of men. And I want you to think about it. Every time he directs somebody, even to the point where the people who wrote the Bible, right? 66 books, 40 authors, they all wrote individually, but it was God's exact message that he wanted. The same thing every time he commands us to do something, every time he plans stuff. People are acting of their own will, of their own choices, through their own personality. It comes out, even in the Bible, right? The way that they write is different. But all of that is exactly what God wanted to get. So in the end, he gets what he planned for. That's a mystery, how God does that. But that's exactly what happened here. God stirs up the spirit of Cyrus. He makes a decree. He's not in a trance. He didn't black out. He didn't go, well, what did I say? Or what did I write? Oh my goodness, it wasn't like that. But in some ways, however it happens, God directed him, moved him, stirred him so that he was making a decision to do this and in concordance to what God was wanting. Amazing how that works. That's a lesson for us, right? That nobody is outside God's reach. No heart is is too hard for the Lord. Maybe we know somebody, we've been praying for somebody who, maybe a friend, a parent, a sibling, or somebody, and we've been saying, man, the, if I'm being honest, it just feels like it's very unlikely that they're going to get a change of heart, right? We've been praying, I've been praying for this person this whole time. I don't know, they're just so far off. I don't feel like they're receiving anything, but I want to let you know, this is a reminder for us that no heart is too hard, that no heart is beyond reach, we keep pleading to the Lord and asking Him to move on their behalf. We keep pleading to the Lord and asking Him to stir hearts like He did with Cyrus. So number one was the remarkable turn of events. Number two is the restoration proclaimed. Restoration proclaimed. So this is the written decree the actual written decree that Cyrus sent throughout the entire kingdom. Beginning verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all of the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. He has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let men of this place help him with silver and gold and with goods and livestock and besides the freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So this is Cyrus's written decree. His first year taking over Babylon, he tells everybody in his kingdom this. Right? Amazing. That's so amazing. And I want you to notice a couple of things. There's five things I want you to notice. There's, they're huge things. But number one, Cyrus recognizes who God is. Right? He says he is God. He recognizes God's hand in his life, that God gave him all the kingdoms of the earth, of the known world. God put it in his hand. That's a lesson for us. 
Right? Are we this quick to give God glory for our accomplishments? Do we respond like that when we hit success? Is, there, is, that, is, this, how we, is this how we give glory to God? Do we go, do we go God, you gave me everything? Because that's what he did. He said, all authority that I have and everything in my hand, the Lord of heaven gave it to me. And I wonder if we're like that. I wonder if that's our reaction. Do we do the same? Or do we feel like it is because of our brilliance and our awesomeness that we reached this point? Is it because we were clever or because we worked hard that we accomplished all of this by our own hand? Oh, we really need to take a page from his book that he gave glory to God quick. In a short decree, right, he gave glory to God repeatedly. Amazing. I want you to notice a second thing. Cyrus says God commanded him to build a house. In other words, God spoke to him, whether directly or indirectly, and he listened, he obeyed, and he gave him glory. The last person to get direction to build the temple was Solomon. And now, God commands a Persian king to build him a temple. I love that. I love the concept of, of that, 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 that everyone in the world, God directs and moves and shifts for his glory and his purpose. I love that. Third thing I want you to notice, Cyrus doesn't command people, right? He gives them permission to stay or go. That's a good leadership uh, lesson, by the way. He doesn't say all the Hebrews, you guys go, get out of here, at this date, go. No, instead he, said, he used the word let. At least in the New King James, he says let, right? He says let him go up to Jerusalem, If you want to go, you have permission. And then, the people to stay, he says, let those who decide to stay, bless those who are going to go. I love that. That's so good, right? He says, if you want to stay, stay. Worship your God. Worship our God. And then he says, if you want to stay here, you can stay here. And if you're you're staying, bless those who are going to go. That's super cool. Fourth thing I want you to notice. In the New King James, Cyrus writes, in that short decree, to Jerusalem, at Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, four times. And he says, in Judah, three times. Right? And it's interesting because the Hebrews and the Jews, they, they always connected God's identity with his presence and geography. They, they always did that. The God in Israel, right? And it seems like Cyrus believes this. That's why he says, the God of Israel, he is God. In other words, what he's saying is, the God of Israel, who is in Jerusalem, he is God. It falls along the same vein, the same line, the same theme as when prophets of old or patriarchs would say, so that the whole world may know that there is a God in Israel, right? That's the same feeling because it's geographically tied. That's how they, they spoke. And it seems that, the fifth thing to observe and notice, is that he seems like he's very familiar with Hebrew realities. Because he's talking about free will offerings. And he's talking about the house of the Lord in Israel. And so... He talks like a Hebrew. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing to me. The question is, though, how did a Persian king talk like that? And so a lot of historians, a lot of commentators believe that uh, it was Daniel. Daniel was a great influence to Cyrus. In fact, maybe Daniel showed him Isaiah 45 that says, Look, God named you 200 years ago that you were going to do this. Right? Regardless what it was, uh, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 21, that's not on the slide. Daniel, it says that Daniel remained 
there in the service of the king in the palace until the first year of King Cyrus. He's been there the whole time, right? So he was brought as a child, survived several kings, and he was there until the first year of King Cyrus when he took charge of the entire Babylonian kingdom. He remained there the same year that Cyrus gave this very decree. Right? So amazing. God is positioning people in the right places for his purpose. So remember, Daniel didn't get there from in a cushy road, right? He was he was imprisoned, he was a he was abducted, he was framed, all these different things, but God put him where he needed him to be. And the question is is God positioning you? Is God putting you somewhere where he wants you to be? Are you letting him? Or are you fighting it? Right? Sometimes the road doesn't seem nice to get there. But it could be that God is, that is the road that God has decided and you're being put in a position where God will use you at his very right time. Seek his face. Find out. And let him know. So the first is a remarkable turn of events. Number two is restoration proclaimed. And three is response to rebuild. A response to rebuild. Verse five. Then the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all whose spirit God has moved, circle that, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold and goods and livestock and with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. So the decree went out and the Hebrews, the Hebrews may go home and God stirs again the hearts of people to respond. So the heads of the families, he stirs up, he stirs up, the, Le- the Levites, which are, which are the priests and the temple workers, and he stirs up certain people that God had moved. That's what it says. And they all rose up and they went to build. By the way, how far do you think Babylon is to Jerusalem? Any guesses? As, who, who did that? So that's pretty awesome. Pretty close. As the crow flies, it's 500 miles. Estimates is a thousand miles. The longest estimate is 1,687 miles, point two miles. That's crazy, right? You had me at 500. I was like, what's that now? Right? But God stirs their hearts and they go. Now I want you to see, remember that there's, there's only two heads of families or, or tribes that were there because, because there was only Judah and Benjamin, who was in the south, that was taken. That's the reason why it was there, right? But there's two groups of people here. Two groups of people. The first group of people are those who left or are about to leave to go to Jerusalem. So in, in Ezra chapter 2, it says, The whole assembly was numbered to be 42,360. And in addition, they brought their servants and maidservants, their manservants and maidservants, and that was 7,360. 37, which is almost about 10,000 something, right? And I want you to notice though, I want you to notice the tone and in between the lines, the tone and the feeling of the people's response, right? There's no hesitation, no grumbling, no complaining. The first word went out and they went. They were eager. 
They were ready. Some of them were probably even born there. Some of them have lived as long as maybe uh, Daniel, and they're way advanced in their age, and they said, let's go. Let's do the 1,600-mile journey to get to Jerusalem so we could build God's house, right? That's awesome. The feeling that you get in there is this eagerness and this passion to do God's work. And my question to us is, are we like that? When the, word of, when the word comes out to build God's kingdom and to build God's house, do we go, yeah? Or do we go, well, I hope no one asks me because that's, you know, that's an inconvenience. I wonder how we respond to that. The second group, though, that we're in here are the people who stayed. So, and a lot of Bible teachers and commentators give them a hard time. Right, they do. They say, "Man, this, you stay in the world. You do." But I have a hard time with that because God doesn't give them a hard time. You never see that here. The people who stayed, God's not mad at them. He doesn't punish them. There's not even a word, right? So those who stayed had an important role because they encouraged the people who went. They financed them, right? They gave them livestock and gold and silver and whatever else. It's kind of the same as missionary work if you think about it. There's people that God stirs up to go and there's people to stay. So God blessed the Senna family, right? God's stirring them up. They're doing this uncomfortable thing and moving. And that's a blessing from the Lord. That's a direction from the Lord. And not all of us are called that way. And so some go and some stay. And all of that is for the glory of God. But many stayed in Babylon, and understandably. And I want you to, one of the reasons why they stayed is Jeremiah 29, verse 5 to 7. Jeremiah 29, verse 5 to 7. You see this? It looks like a CIA report, right? Like it's all the... I, I, did the, I did that in purpose. Now I'm not trying to hide any truth. You can read it yourself later. I want us just to skim through it real fast. That's all. So you can pick up phrases. Okay? God says this to them. He says this to the people when they're in exile. He says, when you're in exile, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, marry, have sons and daughters, increase there, don't decrease, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city, pray to the Lord for it. Right? That's amazing. God told them, when you're in exile, get planted there. Thrive where you're planted. Right? Pray for the city. Increase, Live your lives there. So God told them that. And so some of them said, yeah, we'll stay and settle for the glory of God. Right? And the question for you, for us, for me, is does God want us to stay or does God want us to go? In the ministry, does God want us to stay? Does God want us to go? In our jobs, does God want us to stay? Does God want us to go? In where we live, does God want us to stay? Or God wants us to go? And the only opinion... And direction that matters is the Lord. Don't ever let anyone shame you on whether you stay or go. Right? God tells you that. He convicts you with that. You stick with that. Whether you stay or go, that's God's direction to you. Right? No one knows that besides Him who told you. It's amazing. Amen. So number one, we're doing all the four, right? Uh, you already remember this. So number four is, the last one is returned treasure. The returned treasures. Verse 7, King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temples of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridah, the treasurer, and counted them out to Shezbazer, 
the prince of Judah. This is the number of them. Get ready. 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of the similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Shazbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now in Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 7, it says there specifically, Nebuchadnezzar took those things. He took them when he conquered Judah. He took them to his, his treasury and placed them among his gods. Now remember, remember the Daniel 5 story. Belshazzar, the uh, grandchild of Nebuchadnezzar, took them out, took the same ones out and partied with them, right? He drank with them, partied with them, did all that stuff. And that was the day that God replaced him with the Persians. Apparently God is protective of these things. Right? Don't mess with these things. Right? They're God's, they're God's precious things. So Cyrus not only let the Hebrews go home, he sent them back with their treasures. Alright? Sent them back with their treasures. And, and Shazbazar is probably Zerubbabel. Uh, in Ezra, this is not in your notes or slides, but Ezra 5.14, it says, um, Shazbazar was appointed the governor of Judah. In Haggai 2.21, Zerubbabel was called the governor of Judah. And it's the same timeline, so we're thinking it's the same guy. Okay? Either one, however you say it. One, one, name is, one name is Persian and the other is, is probably Hebrew. But again, I want you to think of something, right? I want you to think, oh, actually I know what you're thinking. Again, I know what you're thinking. You're going, list the plates and knives. How significant is that? Bowls and basins and cutlery. What's that got to do with anything? It sounds boring and it sounds unnecessary until you do the math. Until you do the math. If you add up the basins and the plates and the knives, they total, any math geniuses? 2,499 individual items. But in verse 11, what does it say? 5,400 items. So what is that? Bad math? Broken calculators in Babylon that day? What's going on? Lots of scholars are all are arguing about this. And what, what's, what's the disparity? Was it a copying error? Was it they just didn't count some of the items? Some items were big. You counted them twice. What was it? And I'll tell you what I think. And it's... Super simple, because that's who I am. Simple. They went home with more because Cyrus gave them more stuff. Right? Cyrus sent them home with more than what was taken from them. It's amazing. It's the same concept with Job, right? When his, his, he lost so much, and when God restored all that he had, it was even more than before. Same thing in Joel, chapter 2, verse 25 to 26 God speaks and he says I will restore to you the years not the weeks months not the summer the years that the swarming locust had eaten the crawling locust the consuming locust the chewing locust what kind of how many locusts there are 
My great army that I sent among you, you shall eat in the plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. What, what he was saying was, what was taken from you, what was ripped, what was ruined, what was gone, I'm going to restore it to you. And even more so than what you lost. Right? That's how our God works. That's amazing. That at the end of this chapter, this chapter ends with people and treasures being returned. Right? God is like that. He knows how to save and he knows how to restore what's been taken and what's been ruined. That's amazing. So as we wrap it up, as we start to wrap it up, I want you to hover 30,000 feet. Okay? Because spiritually, strategically, warfarely, whatever, this exile may have been intended by the enemy to cut off the bloodline to bring the Messiah. Right? Eradicated the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, about a third of them was captive. Everybody else was dispersed or destroyed. And realistically, it would have happened if they stayed in Babylon. But it didn't. And as we said earlier, in a matter of a few verses, an entire era shifts, right? An entire group of people and their destiny is, is shifting. And I want you to take a look at this actual slide. Uh, take a look at the picture, the slide. It's hard to see, right? But remember the genealogies of Jesus that we read and you go, oh, this guy begat this and what is going on, right? In Matthew chapter 1, that's, uh, that's the genealogy of Joseph's bloodline. In Luke chapter 3, that's the genealogy of Mary's bloodline. And the red arrows, that's Zerubbabel. He was the governor after the exile, right? So God preserved, in other words, God preserved the divinic bloodline even through the exile. Amazing, amazing. Right? That God preserved His people, His plan, His idea, concept of saving through some tumultuous times. Amazing. God knows what He's doing. Even if it seems like it's chaos everywhere. Even if it feels like the enemy has surrounded us, God knows how to make His plans and His promises real. Real. We're going to do some takeaways. We did the what, so what, and now we're going to do the now what. What do we do now? These are the takeaways. First, work eagerly in response to God's goodness. Work eagerly. When the word of God comes out for the opportunity to build the kingdom, are we excited? Do Do we stand to be counted? Right? Or... Or do we retreat to the shadows? Hopefully no one asks us. And the Bible says, Jesus says that the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. So we should respond like the heads of the families respond, like the Levites respond, everybody else who got stirred up by the Lord. There's a building opportunity to build back the kingdom of God. Let's go. I'm eager. I want to do it. I want to, God, is that what you want me to do? Yes, I'll go. Let's work eagerly. In response to God's goodness. Second. Is leave the business of changing hearts to God. Leave the business of changing hearts to God. Sometimes 
we forget our role and what we try to do is, is stuff that only God can do. And a lot of frustrations come when we try to force God or hurry God. Especially when we want Him to change people's hearts before the time is right. Our role is faithfulness. Our role is obedience. God's role is changing hearts. Let's leave Him to do that. He's good at it, right? Leave Him to do that. Third, celebrate the way that God restores. Celebrate the unique and marvelous and mysterious way that God restores. We've been talking about restoration this entire time, but it's more than just God restoring the loss that we have experienced in our lives. It's more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. The heart of the gospel is the restored relationship between sinful humanity and a holy God. That is the heart, the thrust of the redemptive plan is the restoration of that relationship that was broken in the garden, that relationship that we break because of our sin, Isaiah 59.2. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ultimately, the death of Jesus on the cross happened in order to reconcile us back to God, to restore that broken relationship. And some of us know somebody who needs a lot of restoration. Some of us know you've been thinking about him or her, you've been praying, you've been struggling with the Lord and saying, God, when will you draw this person back? When will you fix that? When will you restore? Some of us, that's us. Some of us feel that. Some of us feel that it's been a long time since my relationship with the Lord has been warm. I feel the distance. I feel Him, and I feel disconnected from the Lord. And some of you have never even felt that first time of being warm in a relationship with the Lord. So I want you to think about this. I want you to think about that if God is able to bring back an entire people group to himself, he can certainly bring one individual back home. And the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation at the very heart is restored relationship with God. That's it. That's it. And as we see through the text how he moves in the hearts and in the seasons and in the plans of everybody, he is doing that ultimately to pursue the sinner and to pursue the lost person in order to draw him back to himself. That's what God's doing. He's doing that right now, at this moment, to you and to me and to those of us who are hearing God's word. So as the as music plays, as the worship comes in, I want you to just spend time with the Lord doing that. I want you to spend time, I want us to spend time in the Lord and ask Him, Lord, what do you, what do you need to restore in my life? What, what needs to happen? What do I need to do? Or if I've never had that, uh, I want that. Right? There's been, you know, the, the common thread between all of our lives is that there is suffering and pain and there's loss. 
but the even more commoner thread is that Jesus restores. And that's a gift to us. So as we worship another time, let God stir your heart as he's been stirring in the text that we've been reading.